All right, Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 reads, When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we're so thankful for your providence. You even, um, even when everything goes against us, we have to believe that you're in control. And even when youth pastors are an hour late, God, it's ordained in your plan for some reason. And Lord, um, we know that tonight you have something special. Father, we know that you bring death to people. Um, you allow it to happen for your purposes, and it's beyond our understanding. That's why you're our Father in heaven. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Your ways are higher than our ways. You're, you're, inf- you're infinite. You're eternal. You're beyond comprehension. You're, you're bigger than us. And you have global purposes that we will never see the glory of until we can actually surrender and say that you're sovereign and everything that you do is perfect and good. Lord, I, I pray tonight that you look upon this field, this body of believers, and God, we're, we rejoice to know that many of us here are, are your wheat and we've been harvested into your house. But God, I fear that some are weeds and they have not been tugged by you. You have not pulled on their souls. And I pray you do so tonight. That you bring them into the harvest of your salvation. Father, I want to pray for the Christians in Asia And we are so overjoyed to hear that thousands every day are coming to faith. Lord, your kingdom is growing there. And yet, Lord, amidst the persecution they endure, they still grow. So we pray for their endurance and their strength to uphold your name even in hardship. Lord, for the laborers there to be strong and to be bold. God, we pray next for Europe and especially for places like England and Germany where, where the gospel once flourished, but now it seems so dead, where cathedrals turn into bu- um, pubs and bars. Lord, God, I pray for your laborers out there that they would be given strength to plow over that cement, over that concrete. Lord, raise a harvest in Europe. And in Africa, send laborers there to meet the needs of those people, both physically and spiritually, and, Father, too, for the Americas that there would be genuine, genuine heartfelt revival. We pray these things, Lord, ultimately that your kingdom expands and that your kingdom grows and your kingdom is glorified. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. This This passage of scripture I by no means was rash to go to, Um, It came through a lot of reflection, a lot of meditation, a lot of prayer. The the subject of this text and what I want to present tonight, it's been cultivated very prayerfully. And it started when I received the disturbing, troubling news that sobered me upright. And it made me face reality in a way that I've neglected for quite a while. And it really revealed something ugly in my heart, and I hated to see it. 
it, it happened, as I, I kind of foreshadowed before we started, with a girl named Nicole Davenport. She was, she's my age, roughly, and um, she was just driving her car, her normal routes for work, and she was at an intersection in Lake Forest. Her left turn arrow turned green, so she started to make a left turn. Meanwhile, a truck just speeding a little bit over the speed limit, and the driver was texting, did not see that his light turned red. He ran through it and plowed her car, passenger side, and she was killed instantly. They took her to the hospital, and there she was pronounced dead. And this this totally stirred me. It totally moved me because this girl was someone whom I worked with every single day. I, I saw her face to face. I worked side by side. Yes, she was with a different company, but we held the same position at the same courthouse. And I watched what made her smile, what made her frustrated. I listened to her laugh every day. She worked with her siblings, which made it even more expressive to see her love for her siblings and their love for her. And she had this infectious, wild, spontaneous laugh that always cheered everyone up. And um, you see her under the trial of work, under um, the leisure of just hanging out when there was not much to do. You, you get close to these people. You, you learn their smells. I could tell when she just had a break because she would, she would trail in a cigarette smoke. And you see their personality, their character, the things they live for, the things they can care less about. You hear them share things from excitement about their weekend and then mumble and grumble about the job and share those experiences and watch them talk to other people because of the nature of our job. There's a lot of conversing at a courthouse. And though I never knew her in a personal um, friendship sense, I knew her in that sense that I saw her every day and was close to her and she became a real person in my mind and yet, yet, this news of her death just for whatever reason slammed me. I, people in my family have died, you know, older people. Um, I, I've heard of people dying and it's nothing new to me, the news, but it's never moved my heart and sunk my spirit so severely as this one did. And I, I sat there and reflected, why is this? Why am I so shocked about this story? Is it because she was so young and taken so unexpectedly? Perhaps. Is it because I saw her day in and day out, and it's hard to, con to, to have that concept of such consistency just being completely removed? Maybe. Maybe it's because I could picture her personality and just the, the, the tragedy of what happened. I don't know. But I think perhaps maybe one of the most stirring things is that for the first time when I thought of death, I sat there and believed in and imagined and contemplated and meditated upon the reality that there is a hell. And I don't know whether she's there or not, but... Just the thought of what if she's there, what is she going through this second? Because I knew she was a partier, and therefore I doubted and wondered her stance with Jesus. And the first thing that hit my heart when I heard about her death was, oh my gosh, what is she going through this second? Jesus described hell as, <laughs> as nothing to chuckle about. I don't know why I chuckled. I did, but <laughs> he... He, he, he explained it as 
a place, a lake of fire and sulfur. He said it's an eternal fire, a place where the worm, the worm is something that eats corpse and it's a symbol of death. It's a place where the worm never dies. He said it's a place of weeping, uncontrollable fear and emotion, and of gnashing of teeth where there's no way to alleviate the torment going on inside other than to just gnash upon yourself. There's no export for your feeling. And he says it's a place of torment. Revelation says that they are tormented there in hell day and night. It's a place of eternity and it's a place of outer darkness. I know what darkness is. And darkness with the complete severance of light is a scary place. But outer darkness, I don't want to picture what exactly that means. And to think... Not just, oh yeah, people go to hell, but you actually picture someone that you saw every day and you know all those things about them. You can picture everything about their personality, their passions and their drives and to put that specimen into that scene of hell that Jesus described is one sobering image in the mind. And if that doesn't stir your heart, I don't know what can And so I want us to think, picture with me, when you see crowds of people, whether it be on the street, whether it be in your school, whether it be at the shopping mart, or filling a stadium, when you see those people, what takes place in your heart about them? Do you, like Jesus, weep for those souls, those people, like Jesus did over Jerusalem? And do you, like Paul, pray that, God, if there's any way that I could send myself to hell, that all of them might be saved, let it be so? Or do you just look and think, "Mm, not even moved by it? Is your heart as unmovable as a mountain, as cold as a glacier, as hard as a stone? These are the things I was faced with in my own heart upon reflecting of this tragic death. Because how often did I talk to her in that real sense of the things of salvation? When I say I don't know if she's in hell or not, that's because I didn't know where she was with Jesus. Why? I didn't pursue finding out who she is inside spiritually enough to know where she was with Jesus. And it just rocked me to think that I could view someone every single day and that sometimes be stuck in line next to someone and not even be moved enough to find out about them. We, we just move on in our own life, like, like a horse with blinders, just looking at my needs and my desires and my goals and ambitions and needs and wants, and we just move in that straight line. And if anybody dare transgresses that line, we're frustrated, we're irritated. We want to we just get away if we can. Why is that? In Matthew 9, verse 36 to 38, we're going to observe two portions. The first is how Jesus saw, how he saw the crowds. Then I want to look at how he, what he wants us to do about those crowds. How he saw them, and in light of that, what he wants us to do about them. So, Let's look at verse 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them 
Jesus looked at the crowds with sympathetic compassion. Sympathetic compassion. Please notice that it does not say when he saw the crowds, he had condemnation against them. Oh, far from condemnation. Yet how wicked my eye, how depraved our nature is, that we can so often look upon misery, look upon situations and someone's suffering, and rather than be moved with sympathy and compassion, we can actually be moved with searing condemnation against them. Think about it. Think about it. How often do you look at a homeless person and think, you probably wouldn't be there if you weren't a drunk? Or if you knew how to finance your finances a little better. Or you look at people suffering under the by effects of drugs and alcohol and you say, it's what you get. You know, we warned you about drugs and alcohol. But, but is this the heart of Jesus? To look upon people's misery and say, well, that's what happens when. Condemning them. Oh, far from it. Our Lord had compassion. And to put this in such stirring, I was appalled when I read this. When I heard the news, I had to go on ocregister.com, the newspaper for Orange County, and, and find the article, and I read it, and there were several blogs, some of whom I'm, I identified. I know who wrote those blogs. It was such an intricate family that knew this girl. And one of them absolutely abhorred me. It's from blogger Stan483. Listen to the condemning words that he has for Nicole. Well, if you search Nicole Davenport at the Superior Court Records site above, you see she has a history of speeding over 65 miles an hour, no insurance or registration, driving over divided highways, and more. <laughs> Sounds like a reckless, irresponsible person to me. And it's a good thing she's off the road. Doesn't matter all this fluff you're all saying about how she's a nice co-worker, etc., etc., she was a danger on the road. Oh my gosh. Like, is that not the most pathetic, hard-hearted thing you've ever heard? Wait, wait, did you hear that? He said, it's a good thing she is off the road. And you have family members writing condolences and grieving over this article, and you have some nincompoop coming with condemnation saying, well, it's because of her recklessness this happened, and she deserves it. Oh, I'm so thankful that Jesus has never looked at us and said, You deserve it, bud. It's too bad. I would have compassion if you only tried harder. Jesus never condemns the crowds. Moved with compassion. Just like in Luke 9, when there was him and the disciples ran into a funeral procession. There was a widow grieving over her little boy whom had died. And Jesus came up, touched the widow and said, Weep not. And then opened the coffin and rose the boy from the dead. And all were marvelously amazed. But what strikes me about that is Jesus didn't look at that situation and said, You know, widow, had you remarried, this boy may not have died. You stretched yourself too thin. The shame you lived that way. Or had you fed him more adequately, or dressed him more properly, he wouldn't have gotten sick and died. None of these are the responses to Jesus. He didn't look at misery and say, this is why. He looked at misery and said, oh, my heart wants to cry in your place. 
he had compassion for these people. Notice, neither does it say that when he had compa- or when he saw the crowds, he had frustration with them. No, far from frustration. But yet, you and I, oh, how frustrated we get when people don't live the gospel. Or, or they're, they're living in sin and they're stuck by it and they start crying to us like, I just want my life to be better. Show me something. And, and we try to show them Jesus. We try to show them the way and they, they kind of get it. But then they just, like a dog going back to vomit, they go right back to their sin. And how often that can frustrate us inside. And, and we look at them and think, just get it together. And I kind of don't feel bad that you got drunk again. I told you not to go to the party. But Jesus wasn't frustrated with them. He had compassion for them. Like in Matthew 14, when John the Baptist, the good friend and cousin of Jesus, died, he was heartbroken. And he and the disciples needed a place of solitude just to reflect. So they get in the boat, they go across the Sea of Galilee. (laughs) And would you believe that on the other side, on the shore awaiting them, Jesus finds a multitude, a crowd of people, Sick, dying, hungry, desperate people all needing him. Well, when the disciples saw it, they looked at their watches and said, Um, Jesus, it's about supper time. Maybe we should send them away. They're frustrated with the situation. We came here for solitude and they're in my way. But Jesus, it says, was moved with compassion for them. And he healed their sick. Far from condemnation, from frustration, he had compassion for these people. Notice it also doesn't say that when he saw the crowds, he was moved with irritation with them. No irritation here. Jesus wasn't bothered by them. He didn't find them as a pest, as as something intruding his plan. In Matthew 20... As Jesus and a crowd's following him, he's moving from Jericho to Jerusalem. He's about to mount a donkey on the triumphal entry, which we celebrate on Palm Sunday. He's about to do this glorious mission where he reveals himself as the Messiah to the Jewish nation. And on the eve, on the birth of this magnificent event, on the way, there are two blind men calling out to Jesus, Have mercy on us, touch our eyes and heal us. And while he's moving, the crowds look at them and say, shut up. Don't bother the master. Don't irritate him. Let him be. Yet they cried out all the more. And when Jesus heard them, he turned aside to them. And with pity, it says, with pity he touched their eyes. And their sight was restored. Oh, Jesus wasn't irritated by the requests. He had compassion for them. And Christian, don't ever think, don't ever think, that you irritate your Heavenly Father by crying out to Him. He doesn't say, Oh, you just called on me 30 minutes ago. Enough! <laughs> Rather, He says, Again? I'm happy to help. I pity your soul. I, I, I long to help. No. Jesus, His compassion ascended condemnation. It surpassed frustration. It had nothing to do with irritation. It looked at the crowds and was moved with compassion. Christian, what moves you when you see the crowds? What moves you? Is it compassion? Or is it the three-headed monster of 
condemnation, frustration, irritation. I believe Jesus had compassion because he saw the people not in their physical condition, but he looked past that and saw their spiritual condition. See, first he looked at the crowds with sympathetic compassion. Next we see in verse, um, <coughs> continuing verse 36, that he saw the crowds in their spiritual condition. Look at that in verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When you and I look at people in their physical condition, it is so easy, it is so easy to be moved with condemnation and frustration and irritation. When you look at a homeless person and you inhale that wretched stench that, that just, that orates, <laughs> that bleeds from them, it, it's easy to be moved with irritation. Oh, get away. I, I want nothing to do with you. Why? Because we look at the physical condition. But if we looked at the spiritual condition, would we not be moved to more compassion and pity for their situation? Looking at the physical condition is a lot like what Santa Barbara just proposed doing yesterday in the LA Times. The city Santa Barbara is going to invest $50,000 to changing park benches 90 degrees. $50,000 to changing 14 park benches 90 degrees. Why? Because these park benches presently sit facing the facade of a shopping mall. You know, there's a walkway in front of the storefront, and then just on the side, there's the park benches. And what's happened with the increase of homelessness, these um, hobos are, are starting to camp out on these benches. They just pretty much move in and make it their living room, and, and they sit there with signs and start panhandling. And while all the rich people trying to feed their materialism are looking in the windows of shops, they don't want to see the poverty. They don't like being moved with sorrow for them and feeling obligated to help them and seeing this sore sight. They, they don't like it. So, Santa Barbara's proposing, this is what we'll do. Instead of giving $50,000 to helping homeless, we're going to put $50,000 to arranging the park benches 90 degrees so that people don't have to look at the homeless people in the eye. Are you, are you kidding me? Like, what's the logic? We don't want to see poverty, so we're just going to turn it away as if it's not there. We don't want to be moved with compassion. If they irritate us, so let's just move them away. This isn't Jesus. He, he didn't look at the physical condition. Cause had he focused on that, I, I, I know how frustrating it can be. You look at people and it's disgusting, some of their situations. You don't want to even think about what they're going through. Or, or you smell cigarette smoke and you just don't even want to talk to them because you can't stand being around them. Or the way that they live so arrogantly, they just annoy you, so you just want to put them away. How much better are we to look past that facade and to see the problem deep inside? Jesus saw it. They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You guys know how helpless sheep are without a shepherd? They are, for wolves and other predators, is basically meat on four toothpicks. <laughs> ready for the picking. If a wolf comes around, 
They're not going to say, watch out, little big bad wolf, I got my horns. They have no defense system. A sheep's more likely to go up to that wolf and say, hi, I'm lamb chops, who are you? <laughs> I'm hungry. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> they, they're so stupid. If left without a shepherd, all the wolf has to do is come and take them. And Jesus sees people, their spiritual condition, so unshepherded, so unprotected, left to the predators of religion, sin, and the cares of this world to pick them off and to gnaw on their souls and to chew on them and to leave them to this putrefying, bloody, chaotic, gory mess. He calls them as corpses, being gnawed at by the self-religious religions that have no compassion, being chewed upon by their own sin that was destroying their souls. And being harassed by the cares of this world, thinking that that's what mattered. And Jesus broke for it because he looked past the physical and to the spiritual. Harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I just talked to somebody who saw this very condition up close and personal. It's something that's easy to want to have nothing to do, turn the eye away from. But instead it moved her heart compassion and I asked her to share um, her experience today I looked fear in the eye her name is Kaylee she was quiet her gaze was shifty as was her story by the way what they did is they went to um, an inner city location and there you just see people living in their souls are just harassed and helpless they're living in, in a condition of sin and this is where compassion gets stirred. So this is where they were. They see this name, Kaylee. And um, she actually, Kaylee, knew one of the girls from our group. They had gone to the same youth group at church a few years ago. It's amazing God's providence. Kaylee pulled this girl aside and told her how she felt so uncomfortable with the crowd that she was with. She told her that she once met a guy online, bought him a plane ticket to come here from Michigan... Well, since he's been here, he's broken up with her, told her that he now has a new girlfriend, and sold the hat that she bought him for drug money. And now she's been, he got her mixed up in the wrong crowd. Once in youth group, now in the wrong crowd, devastated by this guy. I think she was, uh, she walked with us for quite a while. I think she just wanted to get away from the people she was with. I think she was desperate. We then prayed over her and parted from her. I hope she's okay tonight. I hope she's sleeping in her own bed in her parents' house. But sadly, I think this may be just a wishful thinking. She, she roams the streets with this group of drug addicts. She has a family, but she doesn't want to go to them. She's so harassed and helpless. And, and compassion is moved for people rather than just, I don't know what to do, just ignore it. Um, second scenario today, I looked depravity in the eye. He was young. He told us that he had recently been released from the hospital for a drug-related injury. Too much blood loss from shooting up heroin. He told us he was thinking of converting back to Christianity because there was too much blippity blip going on here. I told him he only needs to call out to God and he will be faithful to hear him. But he interrupted with viable quotations that clearly were not biblical at all. He followed that with, Satanism is the way to go, or something to that effect. He looked numb and empty. 
Today I looked foolishness in the eye. She was missing part of her arm right below the elbow. She was joking around and telling a dog to give her high fives or a high nub. She was probably about my age, this is younger 20s, but she looked decades older. She was loud and made a lot of jokes. I wondered about her arm. I wondered if she was born like that or if it had been amputated from drug use. I wondered about her family. Did they know about her arm if it was amputated? Did they know where she was? Was she afraid to go home because she didn't want them to see it? I was sorry for her. I wanted to imagine her as something different, something joyful, laughing with her friends and not at her own expense. I wanted to imagine her as whole, not just physically with an arm, but emotionally whole, spiritually whole. And it, this is summarized as saying, Today I looked lost sheep in the eyes. Their eyes were dilated and glazed over, filled with fear, filled with hate, filled with emptiness. They were hopeless and hurting and hungry. We fed them with peanut butter and jelly and bottled water, but I wanted to feed them. I wanted to let them feast on the bread of life and the living water, Jesus our Savior. I wanted to give them Jesus. We gave them resources for help. And, you know, there are some people that were so drugged out that they had no idea what we were talking about when we talked about Jesus. These people need a pastor among them. They need to see Jesus lived out. They need to be healed, to be taught, to be guided. I went home feeling like the dozens of sandwiches and water bottles we handed out in the grand scheme of things didn't do a thing. True, we fed them for a day. But what, did, what good was it? We gave them a sandwich when all they needed was a Savior. Jesus saw these crowds, sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless. If we look past the physical condition, that depravity, that foolishness, that, that, that poverty, then we won't be condemning, we won't be frustrated, we won't be irritated. Instead we'll be moved like Jesus with compassion, sympathetic compassion, because we see their spiritual condition. That's how Jesus sees crowds. That's how he sees people. What does he want us to do about it? Verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I could just see him looking at these crowds and, and, and pointing to them, with his disciples, look disciples, you see them, look at all of them, look them in the face, look them in the eye, look past their misery, what you see they're represented is a soul, yes, a real soul, with a real destiny to either heaven or hell, right there represented in those people, do you see those souls, oh disciples, that harvest is plentiful, it's just like wheat waiting to be gathered into my father's house. When? When are we going to tap into those resources? When are we going to see those people, not as problems, but as souls, and reach for them? And he says to the disciples, it's plentiful, surely it's plentiful. And it is, as confirmed by my brother and his friend who went on a missionary trip to Nepal a couple years ago. They were, um, Nepal's around India. And, and at one point, they went hiking through the Himalayas where there are tribes that never heard the gospel ever. Nothing. And so little did they know the gospel, it was to this extent that they relate the story as they were hiking with their um, translator and their guide. They heard the guide ask one of the villagers, Do you know Jesus? 
And the villager looked up, furrowed his brow, thought, and then lighted up and said, I think she lives in the next town. And, you know, and that, that is somewhat humorous. But what's tragic about it is that it's 100% true. Not just for that village, but it is estimated that there are 1.5 billion people on this planet that have not even once heard the gospel. Don't even know Jesus, who he is, what he's done. Not even heard the name. 1.5 billion. Oh, that harvest is plentiful. But the problem is the laborers are few disciples. They're few. Look at them. But you have to think, had Jesus said, free iPhone 4s, the lines would have amassed, just like they did the day iPhone 4 was released. Did you hear about that? How crazy it was that Apple got so many pre-orders that they had to stop letting people pre-order. They had more pre-orders than they actually had iPhones. <laughs> and, and people were camping out in front of the Apple store just to get there before they sold out of the in-stock phones. Days in advance, camping out. And I saw on YouTube in San Francisco at one Apple store, a line of people on the day it was opened and released, just around hundreds around this block, just to have the iPhone. The day it was released, I was thinking, can't you wait a month? Is it that important? Oh, but when Jesus calls for laborers into that harvest, three, four, five, trickle forward and say, here I am, Lord. It is such a great harvest. There's so few laborers. So what does Jesus tell us to do? He's commissioned to us. He commissions Christians to pray for laborers. To pray for laborers. Pray earnestly to the Lord to send out laborers into His harvest. Pray? Jesus. You've got to be kidding me. The harvest is this great. The laborers are this few. There's a huge need. And you tell us to pray? Why don't you just tell us to go? For crying out loud, the need's there. Just send us, Jesus. Pray? Why waste time on our knees praying when there's need right there, right now? And I have to ask myself, why would Jesus tell them to pray? Especially when later in Matthew 28, you know the passage well, He will later tell them, go, go into all the nations and make disciples of me. So if He says go then, but He says pray now, I must ask myself, why? Why does Jesus tell them to pray before He tells them to go? And I propose the reason is because Jesus knows that if we don't pray, we're going to stay. We're not going to go out there. You see, He knows that unless the heart is infused with His compassion, the feet will refuse His commission. Catch that. Let me say that again. Unless, he tells us to pray before we go, because unless the heart 
is infused with his compassion, our feet will refuse his commission to go. We must be moved with compassion if we're ever going to effectively reach this harvest. Therefore, he says, pray. Why? Because carelessness is the result of prayerlessness. If we don't have compassionate care, it's because we lack passionate prayer. Jesus knows that when we enter into prayer for people, we grow in a care for people. Prayer turns my apathy into sympathy. It turns my hostility into charity. It turns my self-seeking into soul-seeking. That as I pray, I begin to pity. He puts His compassion in me for those people. And then I can't help but go forward and to go in His commission. And to go reach anybody I know to talk to, to look at, to see. That's why He tells us, pray before you go. Because I want to infuse your heart with my compassion. That your feet cannot all refuse my commission that you can't help but go and nothing in the world will hold you back that's why he tells us to pray he commissions us to pray for laborers I know why now through that reflection in my heart through, through the Lord rebuking me through his scriptures I know why the death in the cold Davenport rocked my heart I know why it's because I never cared enough about her while she lived to go out of my way to simply find out where she is with the Lord. No, 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 no. I understand. Some of us just aren't that aggressive and outgoing. And I'm in that category. I'm one of the most introverted people you'll meet. Yeah, no, it doesn't sound like it when you put the Bible in front of me. But trust me, I'm a little bit social awkward. I'm introverted. And I wasn't one just to go out of my way and talk to her. But you see, she once was talking to me when I was new. And then she found out I was a Christian. Problem number one. Problem number two, and even worse, she found out I was a pastor. <laughs> and it's the funniest thing. I don't know if it's really funny. It's kind of tragic, really. That when people find out you're a pastor... And they like the party scene and all that stuff. They want nothing to do with you. And, and our, true, our interests were far apart. We had no interests. Mutual interests. And, and okay, so that's, that's, that's excusable why I wasn't personally close and wasn't necessarily a friend. But why does that excuse the fact that I never, while stuck and forced to sit next to her in line, rather than reading a book, didn't choose to read her heart and just to know a little bit through small talk about her, just to find out where she is with the Lord. Why didn't I take the effort to, on my knees and in my room, pray for her? The answer is because I flat out did not have the compassion of Jesus for people. I didn't see her and meditate and think about the fact that she's a soul until she died. And then the Lord showed me, Brandon, you only now realize that she's dead, how much you really did care, but you never took the time or the effort to really care, to really show that love. And look, I understand there, there's, there's going to be hard connections with people, but all Jesus is asking right here is that you pray. You pray for this harvest. You pray for laborers to be sent. Can't we at least pray for people? He said to pray earnestly, which means don't just pray some blanket cover prayer like, Lord, uh, all the people at Rim, yeah, they need you, all right, amen. That, that's just praying. And that's fine, it's better than nothing, but he said pray earnestly. 
Oh, that we pray passionately. Oh, Lord, save them. But then sometimes our passion can kind of go, and they hurt my feelings. They're, they're mean towards you, Lord. Crush their teeth in their mouth and, and let them see your truth. Well, well let's, let's define passion here. Pray passionately, yes, but, but even greater, pray compassionately. Pray compassionately. Bring their soul before the throne of the Savior and say, Jesus, this person is like a sheep without a shepherd. I know they're harassed. They're helpless. I have seen their spiritual condition and my heart breaks for them. Will you please move on their behalf and touch their heart and bring your spirit, life-giving spirit into their being? That's compassionate prayer. Jesus commissions us to pray in compassionate prayer. Labor, labor, Christian, is not natural. It takes work. But Jesus wants us to labor in compassionate prayer for people. So I'm going to close. There's five ways we can labor in compassionate prayer. How do we start to move this way? How do we start to see people with compassion? How do we pray for laborers to go? How do we pray for them? What do I do? I, I have a hard heart, Brandon. I agree with you. I kind of I would have been the same way to Nicole. Never really cared. I really don't care that people got to put around me. How do I change to become more compassionate towards them? The answer, of course, is to pray for them. So this is how to labor in compassionate prayer. Five ways. Number one is to recognize and treasure the compassion that Jesus has given to your own soul. Recognize and treasure the compassion that Jesus has given to your own soul. You won't be able to help but to give that out as you take it in. Number two, choose. Choose to see people beyond their physical condition and into their suffering spiritual condition. Choose to see people past the physical and into the spiritual. It's not easy. It's that choice that I'm going to look past what I see and look into their heart and their soul. Number three, Fear far away from suffocating your compassion with seductive sins. Steer far away from suffocating your compassion with seductive sins. Christian, nothing will suffocate, nothing will take compassion out of your heart like a life filled with sin, seeking to satisfy and gratify your own flesh. Steer far away from that. Number four, believe in and meditate on the reality of hell. Don't think of it as some theory or maybe, maybe, God's gonna, maybe people are going to go there. Don't think that way. Believe in it and meditate on its reality. And then five, last, definitely not least. Pray for people personally, by name, every day. Pray for people personally, by name, every day. Lord, I pray for Joey. Oh, how much he needs you. Lord, I pray for Samantha. She, she needs to be saved. Pray for them by name, every day. And I pray that Lord uses you guys to save souls at work, at home, at school. But everywhere, you, we will see fruit. Maybe not 
through you, but through your prayer, definitely, yes. So let's pray. Father, we need compassion. It's our nature to be frustrated and to be condemning and to be irritated with the crowds of people. But teach us, Father, teach us to look past the physical and to see a soul, a helpless and harassed lamb without a shepherd condition people are in. God, give us compassion. Make it our habit and our desire to pray every day for people that you might move our hearts into your harvest. And just for this last minute, I ask you guys right now, start, start naming, bring names to the throne of God even now. Father, you hear these names, you know them so intricately, and you love them. May we never give up praying for them. Move in their hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.